Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-369 of the Run Run Live podcast. Rolling into July and the dog days of summer, and I don't have any race reports for you this week, but I do have an excellent interview with Vi Barr, who wrote a book about running. So I kicked the 5 at 5 project on July 1st and officially made it 32 days on that, and now I'm playing around with some speed work and getting ready to start training for a fall race. And there are there are a couple I'm looking at, both reasonably flat. And my old buddy Brian is back training again, and so is my old friend Frank. So we, we've been doing a couple of longish runs on the weekend. The first one was we went out and, and got out and about Groton with Frank and Brian. And this is cool because I, I trained with these guys. I started training with these guys in the late 90s, and it's really cool to run with them again. And now that they've slowed back down to my pace, Frank had that hip resurfacing that we talked about, and Brian had a foot problem, and I had some uh, issues myself. So we're all back at the same pace again. And we cranked out 14-ish miles. Then last week, I met Brian and Ryan down on the Bay State course in Lowell, and we did a loop around the Merrimack River, another 14 miles. And it was hot, but we lucked out because they were having this triathlon in the river, and we got to refill our bottles a couple times at the triathlon's expense there. And we closed the last third of the mile pretty hard, felt pretty good. My legs are in great shape, and my aerobic fitness is good. I just don't have a lot of leg speed right now. I bought a new pair of Brooks Launch off the internet for 60 bucks, <laughs> and they're lighter and less cushioned than the Hoka's. So it's challenging to do speed work in the Hoka because they're so squishy in the forefoot. The Launch are a bit more responsive. So it takes a while to break in the new shoes and get them comfortable, especially after running the Hoka's for so long. So I, I did run down to the local high school track on Wednesday after the 4th of July. And if you ever have read any of my story about track workouts, this is that track. I have spent hundreds of miles down there. And the old track was heavily used, like maybe 15, 20 years ago. And I learned every pothole and every puddle. And I could run that track in the dark with my eyes closed. But a couple of years ago, they finally resurfaced it. And it was a, we had a nice new track. And then I noticed, though, that it started getting cracks, and there was grass growing up through it in places. So they called whoever installed that track, and they made them come do it again. So we lost it for another year, but now it's back, and it's a new track again. A new, new track. Anyhow, I was curious as to what my leg speed would be after not having done any speed work for a really long time, probably five years, uh, pure speed work, track work. So I ran down to the track, and in my mind, for some reason, I eyeballed the distance and felt like it was, you know, two and a half miles or so. And of course, it's actually three and a half miles from my house, so that's a bit of a warm-up. And when I got there, I loosened up, stretched out, and I did a mile, as hard as I felt I could. And my legs really felt like cement, like I was really dragging them, no pop. And I managed somewhere in a 630-mile range, which is, you know, it's that's slow, not horribly disappointing. I think... The next big landmark for me in my 
slow slide into de- decrepitude will be when I can't run a 1600 in the pace I used to run a marathon at. Uh, we're not there yet. So not to be discouraged, I went back down this week a couple times. First, I did a set of eight 400s at a, an aggressive pace, what felt like a speed pace, and they came in around 135, which isn't bad. That's in the like the 615, 630 pace. So, sorry, 615, 620 pace. But that was what was encouraging is that I was able to feel that form, you know, still not much pop, but good strength and form. And then I went back out Thursday in the rain, did a set of 800s at tempo pace, coming in around 650s, uh, like a, a 325 for the 800. And I think I think if I spent a good solid three weeks working on speed work, I could get a lot of that pop back. I mean, it's not super useful for a marathon training at this point in my life. You know, I'm just really looking to benchmark. I was curious to benchmark the speed and the effort and the heart rate and especially before starting my next training cycle. But my coach hates when I do useless speed work like this. He says, why are you doing that? You're just going to burn yourself out too early in the training cycle. So anyhow, did you see the post I put up this week about the Chinese scientists? They uh, they demonstrated quantum entanglement this week to outer space. So I will do my best here to give you a summary. You'll have to forgive me. I'm not a physicist. I have always liked particle physics for some reason. So this is the stuff that goes on at subatomic or smaller, you know, smaller than an atom. Atoms, that's a word that the Greeks made up because they they theorized at the time, even though they, they didn't have any equipment, all they had was sticks and rocks. They said that if you took matter apart, you'd eventually find the smallest building block. And from the Greeks up to the 20th century, this was the atom. And then smart mathematicians and physicists figured out that atoms were made up of smaller bits. And those smaller bits were made up of even smaller bits. The physics, the way these particles interact with each other, gets really stranger all the time as you go down to the quantum level. In quantum entanglement, two particles, in this case photons, which are particles of light, are behaviorally connected regardless of the distance that separates them. Meaning that if you do something to one of the particles, something has to happen instantaneously to the entangled particles, no matter where that other particle is. So Einstein called this spooky action at a distance and said it could not be true because it violated known quantum physics. So the cool part here, the spooky part, is the instantaneous part. This means that something is happening faster than the speed of light, which breaks all the rules. So anyhow, the Chinese, last week, they measured quantum entanglement between two photons, one on Earth and the other in a satellite in space. And the sci-fi part of this is that if you consider the entanglement a form of information or data, you could say, as the journalists happily did, that they transported a photon to space instantaneously. Pretty cool, huh? There's a lot we don't know. And some of it is cool. Oh yeah. Not to forget, in section one, I am sticking in chapter nine from my Marathon BQ audiobook. I had this nice gentleman with a great Midwest voice record it for me in his studio. And that's the version that's on Audible. And this chapter that I'm going to stick in is about what you need to bring with you if you're going to be doing speed work down at the track. And I was thinking about this topic when I was down at the track this week, so there you go. And in section two, I'll talk about dealing with uncertainty. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Chapter 9. What Equipment Will You Need? Equipment Needed for the Track 1600 Workout What equipment will you need for these track workouts? The 1600-meter track workouts in the Marathon BQ plan are very simple, but there are some basic items that you can throw in your bag to make them even simpler. 
What follows are some practical tips on what to bring to these workouts to enable success. Number one, track appropriate shoes. If you have never done speed work before, you may need to get a new pair of shoes. When you are running at pace, you should naturally be landing on your midfoot and have a high cadence foot turnover. Your existing running shoes may not be the best for this. I'm not suggesting you get track spikes. I am, however, suggesting that the shoes you run your 1600s in are typically less shoe than your standard running shoe. You can get away with less motion control, less heel, and less cushion on the track. When you are running at pace, your shoes will need to be light and responsive. The outsole should be a track or road outsole with a less aggressive tread pattern. Honestly, there is no right or wrong answer to the shoe question. It is a personal decision, and you may want to experiment with different shoes to see what best supports your goals. Number two, a watch. You do not need a GPS or a heart rate monitor for these 1600s. As a matter of fact, a GPS watch will just get in the way for track work. Because you are taking so many corners, the GPS distances will not be accurate and it will struggle to place you. Instead, I recommend a simple Timex Ironman sports watch with a lap button and a light. The lap button is to track when you start and finish your 1600. The light is so you can see what you are doing as you manage your pace. Even better is one with a shake feature that turns on the backlight when you shake your wrist so you do not have to hit a button in the middle of a hard lap. These are durable and waterproof watches that will not cost you more than $30. Number three, light, comfortable clothes. You are going to be working up a sweat. You'll be exercising with a large range of motion in your arms and legs. Your clothing is your personal preference, but it needs to be something that wicks sweat and does not bind. This is true for all of your clothes, your underclothes, your socks, and your hat. Dress for comfort and speed. Number four, a sweat towel. When you work hard at a 1600 workout, you will sweat. An old towel is great for wiping your eyes between efforts. You can sit on it while stretching and use it to keep your car seats dry after the workout as well. Number five, something to drink. You will want to have at least one bottle of cold water. You set the bottle on or beside the track next to the start finish point. This way you can have a drink between repetitions. If you intend to use sports drink or some other type of fueling during your marathon attempt, you may want to bring this specific concoction with you so you can get used to working out hard with that in your stomach. The caution is that it may make you sick, but that is all part of the learning and training experience. Number 6. Something to eat. I will talk more about how to fuel your marathon in chapter 16, but for now I would recommend eating whatever your chosen race nutrition is about 30 minutes prior to the workout. This way it will be digesting and getting into your bloodstream by the time you start the workout. This fuel should help you sustain your energy for the last few laps as well. This is entirely optional. You can do the workouts on water alone, but the track is a great place to get some practice eating and drinking while running hard. Digesting on the run is a key marathon skill. Practicing during the workouts gives you a head start on knowing what you can and cannot manage. Number 7. Loop. With all the sweat and vigorous running, you will be prone to chafing during 1600 meter workouts. To alleviate this, you will want a prophylactic application of lube on your pointy bits. Check with your local running club or chat group to see what they recommend and procure a big jar of lube that will last the length of the plan. Whether it is a running specific lube like Aquaphor or Glide or something as simple as Vaseline, you will be happy you did. Number 8. Change of clothes in a plastic bag. You may want to bring something dry to change into after your workout. If you get particularly icky, you may not want to ride home in these workout clothes. A large plastic bag gives you something to put on your car seat so you'll not swamp the minivan and make your family mad. Number 9. Chalk. One of my favorite things to do when I have a long track workout is to bring a couple pieces of playground chalk. I use these to mark off the 1600s as I complete them. It is a fun way to get into the workout and it keeps you from forgetting how many you have done. You simply write tally marks on the track between repetitions. The only caution is that little kids may steal your chalk if you leave it out. Number 10. A kit bag. With all this stuff, you will need a sports bag of some sort to carry it all. 
This bag becomes a great management tool when you get into the thick of your training. You simply keep all the items you need in the bag and grab it when it is time to work out. The bag also gives you a place to hide your keys and wallet while you are doing your workout. You can place the bag on the track with you so you can keep an eye on it. With the bag, towel, and drink bottle, you can establish your own base camp out on the track to keep marauders at bay. Number 11. What I left off the list. The first obvious thing that I have left off the list is a phone or any other electronic device. It is perfectly okay to listen to audio while you are doing your track workouts, but only if it does not get in the way. Understand that the effort level here is such that you probably will not want to be messing with headphone cables or carrying anything unwieldy in your hand or pocket. If you are going to be listening to music or audio, find a device that is hands-free and does not bounce. Another thing I have left off this list is any kind of fuel belt or other wearable item. The 1600s are hard enough without being encumbered by more stuff. You may be comfortable wearing some sort of bottle belt on your long runs, but leave them home for the 1600s. The 1600s are about pace and form. You should not have anything strapped to you or anything in your hands. Organizing your kit before you go to the track and keeping it all in your kit bag will allow you to focus your willpower on the workouts and not on the prep. A sure way to deflate your energy for a late night or early morning track session is to be hunting around your house in the dark for some lost item. Showing up at the track only to discover you've forgotten something is a momentum killer as well. A simple checklist and organization strategy can keep you on track and let you focus on the important stuff. And now for today's featured interview. So, my bar... <laughs> 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 well, you give us a quick introduction of uh, who you are, what you do, and where you're from, and why we're talking here. Okay. My name's uh, Vibar Cregan-Reed, and I've written a book called Footnotes, How Running Makes Us Human, that was published on the 3rd of July in the U.S. I am an English professor, and I teach uh, 19th century literature at the University of Kent, and a few years ago, I decided that I wanted to write about something that I was really passionate about. So I started a blog and I was just sort of playing around with some ideas. I, I was fairly sure I wanted to write something about my running and about how my interest in literature and about how those two things might cross over. And when I began, I really didn't know how these things would work at all. But pretty soon, the writing sort of fell into a, a groove where it just seemed to work. So in the UK, there's a big fashion at the moment for a re-emerging kind of writing called nature writing, where people write about their engagement with their surroundings or with the natural world. And this is almost entirely focused on the activities of walkers and people that like to go out and walk at the weekend. And, I'm a, you know, I love walking. I walk at least five miles a day but I felt that runners were being shortchanged with this kind of literature so I wrote footnotes and it's a running book but it's a blend of nature writing literary criticism and memoir yeah and we were talking before it really resonated with me because of the way that running causes you to create this sort of art if you will right it almost forces you to to synthesize ideas like this, partly because of what I call the happy chemicals, the state that you get in when you're out there. But it seems to allow you somehow to synthesize unrelated things and do pattern matching and then sort of force you to write that down. Yeah, it does. And there are lots of debates as to why exactly this is. Um, one of the more persuasive ones, I think, is that resources in the brain are basically competitive. So if one part of the brain, like your limbic system, is telling you to be stressed out or is uh, spending all its time sending you messages about what a bad person you are, um, one of the ways in which running can de-stress you, for example, is by doing any kind of complex motor activity. So picking up three balls and learning to juggle with them or, or going out for a run. And because these resources in the brain are competitive, it means that there's parts of the brain that stress you out, literally have energy drained from them 
because the brain needs them to negotiate tussocks of grass or dodge the branches of a weeping willow that, that's come into leaf over the path that you normally run. And there's a whole blend of stuff. So you get all the happy chemicals as well, but it's, it literally shakes up the chemistry in the brain so that it means going for a run won't make you a creative person, but it, you can't create creativity. But what you can do is create the conditions in which creativity is likely to flourish. And running is certainly one of them. Yeah, and that's uh, you briefly talk about um, flow states with um, I'm going to get this wrong too. Chick six, set me high, whatever the guy's I'm, name is. I'm I'm not even going to attempt it. Yeah, so flow states. <laughs> but part of yes. that it is not that it's creating activity in your brain, which it is, but it's also shutting down certain areas. Yeah. And one of the areas that shuts down when you get into a flow state is your ability that the part of your brain that tells time. So if you've ever been out on a run and sort of woke up and said, where did the last half hour go? That's the flow state shutting down that part of your brain that tracks yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as because of your background as a PhD in English literature, <laughs> you um, have this one narrative where you're sort of chasing authors, right? Where you're going places yes. where authors wrote a famous screed of some sort and getting lost in their, their footsteps, either in the English countryside or over here, five miles from my house, over by Walden Pond. Are you that uh, close? Wow. Yeah. So I wouldn't go to Walden, though. I never go to Walden because, like you said, it's a park, right? It's not the Walden of yeah. the Row. It's like it's a, a tourist attraction. Yeah, it's, it's, I've, I've, it, I've never been to the Tower of London. I live in London, but I've never been to the Tower of London for the same reason. Yeah, it's a diorama yeah. of Walden. Right. Just so. Yeah. And I felt the same thing when I went, when I went to Niagara Falls. Right. It's like, oh, look what they've done to this beautiful thing. Right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm with you on that. But, yeah, you went to some of these and some of these are great because you do that thing that I love to do, which crosses the line between experience and adventure, where you go yeah. out trying to accomplish what things, but you do it so half baked that you get lost. <laughs> yeah. 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 Or like me, where you overestimate your abilities to be able to navigate. <laughs> yeah, so that was a, one of my favorite chapters of the book. It's a chapter about running in the Lake District. But it's really, it's also a chapter about mental exhaustion, actually, as well. You know, being a professor is a great job, but it can be really, really draining at certain times of the year. And I was just desperate for some sort of escape. And so I tried to have an adventure and then had one that was a little bit more adventurous than... I'd planned really by going out and running on the mountains in the fog and the, and the rain where people get lost and bad things do happen. So in hindsight, it wasn't such a great idea, but I certainly had a wonderful time doing it. And I was footstepping Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who was Wordsworth's best buddy. And they walked all over the lakes, but Wordsworth kept a journal of the, the places that he went. So I was able to follow some of that, but in my Nikes instead of walking boots. Yeah, and those guys were of a school that was one of the iterations where they tried to connect back to nature. If I'm, you're you're the expert Absolutely. on all this stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, this is why I said that nature writing is coming back into fashion. It's not a new thing at all. It sort of emerges. Nature writing emerges around the industrial revolution when people start leaving the country and pouring into the city to work in the factories and lots of the sort of lots of the environmental concerns that we have now about valuing our surroundings or going to a park to have a nice walk. This all starts with these guys, with uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge and the Romantics, as they call themselves. Right. And then you get later in the book, you get into this uh, concept of sort of using the outside, the nature as a cure almost, right? Yeah. Right? Where you're doing this forest bathing. Yes, the, yes. The environmental empathy. And yeah. it, it, like I said, it appears to me is almost the same physical effects as people who do uh, transcendental meditation. Yeah, yeah. I learned so much. I mean, I, I went over to uh, Michigan, to Ann Arbor, to meet some experts in environmental psychology. And it was they, in fact, who first told me about forest bathing, which is a Japanese practice. It sounds like something that's sort of very exotic, but actually forest bathing, all it means, the Japanese word is uh, shirin-yoku. All it means is literally spending time in a forest. And I'm trying to decide on the hoof as to how deep to get into all of this, because if we go down to an avenue, down one avenue, we'll get completely lost. But forest bathing is one of uh, a whole plethora of environmental practices that are 
beneficial to us and to our bodies in ways that when you read the data, it just seems simply unbelievable. And the outcome, though, the outcome, like when we say beneficial, the outcome is essentially happiness. And healthiness. So if you have, I don't know how a forest knows this, but if you have high blood pressure, spending time in a forest going on a a lengthy forest walk, if you have high blood pressure, that forest time will lower it. But if you have low blood pressure doing the same thing, the forest walk will normalize it. It's incredible. So whatever blood pressure problems you have, forest time will help with them, whether it's high or low. It does all sorts of things like it stimulates mental well-being, but it has real effects on the workings of our bodies as well. And it's not just forests. I mean, that forest bathing is, like I said, is only one aspect of sort of lots of um, research that's going on into how we not only how we interact with our environment, but how our environment interacts with us. Uh, green spaces in general are just incredibly potent things that we take for granted, but they make it easier for us to learn. They make us more empathetic. They actually make us nicer to one another. They do all sorts of things. It's incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. And then on if the, the flip side of that, I got a, a kick out of your meandering through the, tre- the history of the treadmill. Oh, wow, and, the treadmill. I love the treadmill. So, so yeah, it was a great chapter, right? Uh, because I have always felt that the treadmill was a, a penal colony device. Um, <laughs> and it turns out it is. It is, yeah. So some people love the treadmill. Lots of people like to outsource their responsibility for exercise. They just punch in a number. When the machine stops, that's when they stop. They don't have to think about it. It requires less motivation from them. So they do. They have their advantages. But, boy, loads of people absolutely hate them and yes they have this incredibly dark history so the reason that they were invented was because at the end of the 18th century during the enlightenment when lots of philosophers were rethinking about our relationship with religion and with science yeah these, and, these are the same guys who came up with the guillotine yes yes <laughs> indeed, indeed so they decided that they needed to be putting somebody to death for stealing a loaf of bread It's not that they felt it was wrong, but they felt that it wasn't very useful to society because it might actually be a crime that would, or a punishment rather, that would inculcate further crime. So if you steal a loaf of bread and somebody's running after you, the punishment for killing that person is no worse. So, you know, it actually makes you commit more crimes. So they wanted to come up with um, a more sort of nuanced layers of punishment. So they wanted to come up with something between spending a long time in prison and death. So they literally came up with the treadmill. Yeah, but first they came and they said, let's have them do hard labor. Let's have them dig ditches and break rocks. And they said, but that's taking work away from some other people. So we can't give them anything that's useful. We've got to well, give them something that's totally pointless. <laughs> we've got to give them something that's totally pointless because that will uh, be more unpleasant for them. So you can't take work away from people that have work, but you also can't make, allow the prisoner to feel pride in their work. So they have to do something that's useless. And the, the, the treadmill was the invention yeah, for this. Because it goes and nowhere. It goes nowhere. It goes round, 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 round. There's no point um, to it. And it went through several refinements throughout the 19th century. But yeah, at the end of the 19th century, Oscar Wilde, when he was sentenced in 18, oh, what year was it? 1895. He was sentenced to three years hard labor. I mean, I'm 48 and I think Wilde was 46 when he died. He came out of prison completely broken in 1898 by his time on the treadmill. And I think he lasted about two more years. Yeah. And yeah, he died. So it was a serious business. But my God, the PR about turn that the treadmill manages to do between the end of the 19th century and just after the Second World War, when it's reinvented as a health and fitness machine. That's one of the greatest PR about faces, I think, of, of all time. Yeah. And you're I think the one sentence you have which really puts an exclamation point on it or a stamp on it is that the treadmill is running removed from context. Yes. And that's what I would argue with a lot of the scientific um, stuff where they're testing people on treadmills because it's not the same thing. Right? It's not the same thing. And that's, that's why the neuroscience chapter in the book is so important is because it's providing a sense of all of the invisible things that are lost with things like treadmill runs or indoor rowing machines. or Right. Or they strap somebody on a, an indoor bicycle and they try to test these things and measure these things. It's different. It's a different thing, right? You can't, it is, you can't yeah. draw conclusions from that. 
right? I met some great researchers at the University of Essex, just outside London, who work in a research group called Green Exercise. And what they're interested in is looking at the environmental benefits that humans get from being in certain environments, then looking at the corporeal benefits that humans get from exercise, and then seeing that investigating how these things work together. So lots of their lab work does involve using bikes and treadmills, but they are testing things like uh, the impact that certain smells have or certain noises yeah. have, or they have people running in front of big screens that's to videos of, of natural spaces. And they still produce persuasive data, but because it's a, a different environment, there always is that issue of, but it's still not the outdoors. Yeah, you can't remove the running from the experience, from the context, no. right? No. And at some point, there's no point in trying because that context is within you as well, right? So you're bringing your literature to that running, right? Indeed, yes. And yes. so that's your context. And so yeah. testing you, so everybody's sort of an experiment of one in this thing. But it's interesting because I think we're right now on the cusp of having the ability to put that scientific measuring on a person and send them out into the wild. Right. It's getting to that point. So we're going to be able to get some some new data around that true experience. Right. Yeah. The technology is not far away where you can just put like a baseball cap on somebody's head and get all the information that you need. I think we're not quite there yet. But I think one of the things that might come out of this research is that treadmills actually might get a lot better. Yeah. Um, they will be able to start to give people more of the. Treadmill runners are never going to run outdoors. Lots of people do both, but lots of treadmill runners are committed gym goers. But as technology improves and, and as the science improves, I think it's going to be very easy for the manufacturers in this. It's a multi-billion dollar industry yeah. to start giving some of that experience back to treadmill runners, I think. Yeah, and I, I went through a thing where I interviewed probably five treadmill companies about five years ago just because yeah. I was curious about it. And the basic mechanics of a treadmill are exactly the same. Yeah, they are. And they yeah. always have been. The part that they're differentiating on is that experience, right? Yeah. It's the speakers and the channels and the all that stuff. Right? And the screen. So, yeah. yeah, the screen. Absolutely. So one of the things you get to do as a scholar is you get to travel, right? Yeah. And I spent my whole career traveling. And one of the coolest things is to be able to step out of a hotel somewhere and just look around and say, I'm going over there, right? Yeah. Just use your feet to explore. So. And I made a book out of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that's that's another one of the narratives here. And the the funniest one I read from your book was the Dickens Convention. And I got this <gasps> picture in my head that it's like sort of Comic Con, but for people who like Dickens, it's like. Um. Yeah. I think <laughs> that's exactly what it is like. It's. Uh, it's called the Dickens Universe because the Dickens world wouldn't be big enough. So it's called the Dickens Universe. It runs every year at University of uh, Santa Cruz in California. Of course. And yeah, of course yeah it's, it's in California. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, fa it's fantastic. It has very committed uh, clientele. So academics go, members of the public go. I've met some wonderful people there. And yeah, they spend a, an entire week on one Dickens novel. But actually, uh, funnily enough, this year, I think for the, it might be the, for the first time in its history, they've chosen Middlemarch by George Eliot. So I think mm. for the first time ever, it's a, it's a non-Dickens novel. So there you but, go. I have read Middlemarch, and George Eliot is a woman. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's a great, it's a great book. Yeah, um, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, to us 19th century folks, it completely rocks. Yeah. A little British and plotting for me, but... Yeah. Oh, it's long, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but that ability, I think there's a certain freedom, and, and you boil it down in your summary is that, you know, what is running to you? It's freedom, right? Yeah. And I think I feel the same way, which is that ability to step out the door and look around and say, I'm going over there, see the forest and smile and just plunge in. And part of what you struggle with as a runner when you start to get older is how do I keep the freedom, right? Yeah. Because I got to keep in good enough shape that I can do that sort of thing and survive 10 miles without water in a forest somewhere. Right? Yeah. So it's kind of interesting because as you get older, you lose your ability to run. You're going to start to lose some of that freedom. And that's, you know, I see it in my dog. I feel it in my body already. I'm 48. Yeah, I can already feel the change in my body. I remember until I was about 40, I think, I'd have a little break from running over Christmas 
and then go back to it on like the 3rd or 4th of January or something. And the first couple of runs would be a bit stiff, but definitely by the third run, I'd be absolutely fine and back to where I was sort of three or four weeks ago when I'd stopped. Now it takes till about June. It takes absolutely ages. If I stop, it's incredibly difficult to get going again. And I, I have more problems with my joints, so I have lower back problems. We don't pick up most of our injuries when we're running. They happen while we're running, but that's not where their cause is. Their cause is in the rest of our lives when we sit down, when we do this really weird thing, which is sit at, uh, with two 90-degree angles, one at our knees and one at our butts, because it's not it's not what the human body was meant to do. It's not what our bodies are designed to do. We think of chairs as being really, really old, ancient things, but there's not a single mention of a chair in the Bible. By the time you get to Shakespeare, there are no mentions of a chair in Hamlet. In King Lear, I think there's three. But Bleak House, which is one of the novels that I talk about in footnotes, in Bleak House, there are 187 chairs. There are now billions more chairs on the planet than there are people. Hmm. So sitting down and reading a book is more likely to inculcate a running injury than going for a run is, I think. Hmm. Interesting. So how did you manage to talk a publisher into uh, into taking this on for you? <laughs> this would not seem to check any of the boxes uh, for a publisher. Because it's a hybrid book. It's um, Because it's sort of a running book, but... Some of the Amazon reviewers have said it's not really about running, it's about life and nature and everything. So it's sort of a hybrid book. So, yeah, it is a bit tricky because also I don't really know what section of a bookstore it should be in. I mean, obviously it's about running, but it's about so much more as well. Yeah, um, I think maybe the closest would be uh, Hirakami. Is that right? Yeah, Murakami. Murakami. Yeah, Murakami. Yeah. yeah, it would. Mine's got yeah. more footnotes. But yes, it, and, yeah, and, and like you were saying before, Murakami's book is what happens when you pour a successful novelist on top of running, right? Yeah, that's a lovely that's image. What you get. Yeah, that's a lovely image. Yeah, that's the output. Yeah, it's interesting, and and I'm glad for the catalyst of running in our lives that we can produce these kind of kind of things. All right, and, yeah. and one of the funny things that you found going back in your exploration of authors was that a lot of these really good authors were if not runners they were walkers right and a lot of these brilliant people if not runners they were walkers right so they're doing something and it's there so there seems to be some sort of uh, correlation there there is it's tied up with the history of running itself really and also with the history of exercise so lots of writers now do run it's very common when you get a group of writers together whom amongst them are regular runners quite a few of them are but in the 19th century they just weren't runners and lots of the sort of geopolitics of local spaces was uh, different but the main thing is is that the idea of exercise is really quite a new thing Nobody does any exercise in Shakespeare. Nobody does any exercise in in Chaucer. A few Greek aristocrats back in the day talked about exercise and thinking, like Aristotle. But between Aristotle and sort of the end of the 19th century, there is not really very much talk of of exercise at all. It's something that's rare because, (laughs) precisely because, people didn't need to exercise. People had jobs that required them to move and to use their bodies. There's a, a lovely illustration in the book, I don't know if you remember it, of an invention from 1798 called the Gymnastican, Yeah. which was this utterly absurd machine for, it was a patent for a machine that was basically like a, a sit-down cross-trainer. Yeah, it, it, it would not be out of place in a gym. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, one thing that would be out of place would be the handle that's on one of the wheels. And the reason that there was a handle there was, as the patent states, so that you could employ a small child to work the machine for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth a, uh, having a Google to actually see the machine itself because it's so ridiculous. So uh, the gymnastican was a commercial failure, but now that we have mostly sedentary jobs, it only took a bit of electricity and we now have treadmills and stairmasters and cross trainers because we desperately need that kind of activity in our lives because it's being denied us by the way that we work now yeah otherwise you just don't get it so with all this adventuring that you've done what are your top three or top one or two uh, adventures you think i think well the lake district is my top adventure because i think any adventure where you might have died is usually quite, <laughs> quite memorable 
But I'd also say, actually, I, I must confess, I didn't run there. But Detroit is, without failure, one of the most impressive, in the truest sense of the words, it's one of the most impressive places I think I've ever been. I will never forget going there. I had a friend of a friend of a friend who lived in Detroit took me out one night and I'm an introvert. You know, I don't like meeting strangers. And I had the most eventful, crazy night out with this stranger. It was like, I don't know, it's like the movie Date Night or something. Yeah, all because of Detroit. I love Walden Pond. I'll never forget uh, running in Massachusetts. I love being in Boston, Venice. A a better book for you would be um, Cape Cod of uh, The Rose. And that would be a better walk for you, too, because that, oh, really? is, that is probably more true to what it was back yeah. when he did it. That actual part where he walked is a national park. So you could do that walk again. Cape Cod. Cape Cod. Yep. So right. now you got an assignment. See, there's a book I've read that you haven't. I didn't think That's there good. were any. But I think I'm coming go. back to Boston soon, so I'll do that. He and his brother walk up the spine of Cape Cod. It was one of his first books. It's quite funny, too. Oh, oh, that make a change for Thoreau. <laughs> well, it's funny in the literary sense. Right. One of those things where you get three sentences on and you go, wait a second, that was a joke. <laughs> uh, rye, I think is the word, isn't it? Rye. Yeah. All right. I got to uh, push you towards the exit here, Vibar. Yep. But uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. I wish you success with this. How do people find it? How do people get it? As I said, it's published on the 3rd of July. And it's available on Amazon and in bookstores. It's published by Thomas Dunn, which is one of uh, the St. Martin's publishing houses. Yeah, it's published by Thomas Dunn. Yeah, they have my number, these St. Martin's press people. They keep sending me books, and I'm glad for it. Hey! So, uh, yeah, that's good. It's coming out today. And this would be a good book for somebody going on their summer holidays, because uh, I think you really need to be someplace quiet to uh, really absorb it. Yeah, just a regular runner. One of the reasons I wrote it as well was because I felt that many running books were about people that were able to run Saharathons or right, run, right, run ultramarathons right. on the ice caps or something. And I wanted to write a book about the magic and the alchemy of just normal running, running in local environments regularly and getting to a point where you're fit enough to be able to take advantage of the many, many rewards that running has for all of us. All right. That's brilliant. All right. With that, I will uh, let you get back to your day. Sorry Thank for you. stealing so much of it. <laughs> it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Uncertainty. So I had that chat with the Anxiety Podcast guy last week. And one of the things I noticed when I was talking to him and looking at the situations where we have anxiety is that much of it stems from uncertainty. And uncertainty is where we have many interrelated events or pressures in our lives, and we don't know how it's all going to turn out. Uncertainty makes us feel helpless because we cannot control the outcome. We don't know how it's going to shake out, and this gives us anxiety. Our minds don't cope well with uncertainty. They're not designed to. They like things to be resolved That uncertainty of how things are going to turn out, it raises tension, which leads to stress and anxiety. Think about a recent movie you watched or a novel you read. Was there tension? And that tension was probably built through the uncertainty of the character's fate. You didn't know how it was going to end. You were excited and nervous for them, the characters. And I bet at the end of that story, it all worked out. And they lived happily ever after or some other resolution of certainty And that resolution of certainty, that makes us happy. Unfortunately, the only thing that is certain in life is change. And we pretend that today is going to be the same as yesterday and tomorrow will too. That's not how it works. When you try to look into the future, you see branching probabilities that lead to different outcomes. And some of those outcomes might not be pleasant. That uncertainty gives you stress. You will see this most starkly outlined in high relief during times of transition, career changes, relationship changes, beginning or ending a chapter in your life, moving from a known place to an unknown place, 
These are the spots where uncertainty makes you stressed. One of the ways to deal with it is to stop trying to find an answer. Stop thinking deterministically. I used to talk to the guys who work for me, and I said, you know, think of it as a cloud of probabilities. You can't create a specific outcome, but you can move the cloud. It's like herding a big flock of agitated turkeys. Or if you're more mathematically wired, think of this this series of possible outcomes and apply the Pareto principle. All you need to do is control 20% of the uncertainty and you can get 80% of the outcome you want. And if indeed it is an infinite series, then your calculus will tell you that 80% of the value is in the first handful of terms of that series. Same thing said differently. That probably doesn't help you much, right? <laughs> so, so how do you deal with it? How do you deal with this uncertainty? The first thing that helps is to let go of outcomes. And uncertainty gives us stress because we don't know the outcome. If we can detach ourselves emotionally from the outcomes, the uncertainty loses its stress value, and we can better focus on the now, the journey. And this allows you to work the plan today that will result in a better outcome in the future. Then all you need to worry about is, did you do what you needed to do today? And this is the one step at a time or one day at a time philosophy that takes a big hairy problem and resizes it to something our little brains can chew on, can wrap themselves around. And this will allow you to live the adventure that life is today. One of the stress elements here is when potential results could be bad. Our brains spin out of control. They go down the bad path, and they make up all kinds of horrible outcomes. The logic is actually quite humorous. It goes like, if I move to Cleveland, and I can't find a new job, I won't have any friends, I'll run out of money, I'll get thrown into the street, and I'll get kidnapped by human traffickers and be sold into slavery in Transylvania, or some other scenario like that. Even worse, now you start to fixate on that horrible outcome, and even though this outcome is more remote than being struck by lightning while riding a unicorn, you become emotionally incapacitated. So stop that. Seriously, ask a reasonable question. What's the worst that can happen? And then mitigate that. You move to Cleveland. You don't like it after three months, you can come back and live in your mother's basement. Better yet, why not replace that question with, what's the best that can happen? You move to Cleveland, find a great job, make new friends, learn new things, have cool adventures. What do you have to do today to make that movie play out? Refocus on the possibilities, not the uncertainties. It's subtle, but in doing so, you flip the negative to a positive. Having a positive attitude about the potential outcomes flips the stress on its head. Whenever you feel the stress coming on, you can play that positive outcome movie and smile. You're going to love Cleveland. Now you're free to use your skills to create that positive outcome. It's also very helpful to focus on those things that you control. You may not control the hiring in Cleveland, but you can control the number of phone calls you make today. You can control the way you react, the way you feel, which leads to your next thing that you can control, action. If you're worried about unknown outcomes, take action. Do something. Write that letter, read that book, make that call, chop that wood, carry that water till your garden. Action beats worry every time. As in all stressful situations. It helps to be able to talk it through with someone, even if that someone is yourself. You can, you know, if you can write or journal your uncertainties, you will see how they don't hold as much power as you're giving them. I personally like to use a nice long trail run to work through the tangled web of the universe, but that's me. We like to think that there is some sort of sure thing, some sort of fixed destination. And we waste a lot of time trying to get to that fixed destination. There is no destination, and there never will be. Don't waste energy trying to create it or hold on to it. 
detach yourself from the destination, and enjoy the journey. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends. We have read our way through the collective works of Coolidge, Byron, Scott, Keats, Shelley, to the romantic end of episode 4-369 of the Run Run Live podcast. Good for you. Did you enjoy our chat with Vibar? He's an interesting dude, huh? Since we last talked, I took Buddy down for his annual vet checkup and his shots, and he's healthy as he can be for an old man of 14 years old. He actually loves the vet. I may have told you that before. They give him food. They say nice things to him. He likes it down there. It's very interesting for him, like an adventure. He's got a positive attitude. I told them he had gone totally deaf over the last six months, and they said that's normal. And if it didn't bother him, which it doesn't, there's really nothing to worry about. I think it helps him this time of year, at least with the thunderstorms and the fireworks. And for some reason, the coyotes being super vocal right now outside in the woods at night, he misses all that and just sleeps through it. He's also lost a good seven or eight pounds since the last time I was in there. And a lot of that is muscle mass, I'm sure, just from getting older. He leaned up a bit running with me most days in June during the 5 at 5 project, too. So I noticed the same thing in my own old body. You just lose muscle mass as you get older. So you got to fight that trend. I think I'm going to run the Portland Maine Marathon, which I believe is called the Maine Marathon, on October 1st. And that's a bit of a shorter training cycle for me, but I'm in pretty good shape already, and I'm healthy. So if you want to come up and run with me. It's a flat marathon in southern Maine. Plenty of places to stay that time of year. We can have some fun. It's been a weird, rainy, and cool sort of July so far. It's very strange. Haven't got that hot, dry weather that we usually get. I've put up a whole bunch of wood, chopping, splitting, carrying wood, and my raspberries are coming in. I get about a pint a day of raspberries, even after the birds take their share. And But with all the rain, I'm getting some mold on my raspberries. Yeah, my tomatoes are coming in. They're going gangbusters. We'll see if they fruit out at all. You know, we're going to need some hot weather for that. I had a, a bit of a uh, a long week this week. We lost a young family member and my wife's family, same age as my kids. And it's always a tragedy when we lose somebody, somebody young. And it makes you think, rightly or wrongly, it makes you reflect on your own life and your own family and the fragility of it all. So folks, hold those you love tightly. Don't waste time on petty things. And forget the slights real and imagined within your family, because that always happens. Reach out and hold the people who who need you. Right now, today, you can do one thing. You can turn on your love light and let it shine. Let it shine, 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 let it shine. And I will see you out there, and thank you for being my friend. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed. So hard it made him cry. It's like herding a big flock of agitated... <laughs> it's like herding a big flock of agitated... Wow. All right, my friends, you have uh, read the collective works of Coolidge Byland. <laughs> okay. Shall we start over? It is Saturday afternoon. 